I, I was going to preach from Psalm 37, but I just felt God pulling me back to Psalm 73 because these two psalms are so similar in speaking to the struggle that I often face and I believe many of you may face. And that is the struggle to square your theology, your belief in God, with your personal experience. You know, if God is good and we believe that he is and he's all powerful and he's all loving and he's all knowing then why does he allow so much evil and suffering in the world and not only in the world but in our personal lives sometimes it feels like that our faith is futile we're we're trying to live for god and we have this expectation that if we live godly lives things will go well for us but sometimes the opposite is true you can live a godly life and still struggle and still suffer and still face the consequences of the problems and the evil of this world. I mean, perhaps you're a family wanting to have a child, and yet you've not been able to. And you've prayed and you've longed for that child, and you can't have a child. And then you see how many children are aborted in America every year, and you say, God, where are you in this? Why aren't you answering our prayers? Or maybe you've started giving financially. You want to partner with God and His church and telling other people this good news of Jesus. But about the time you start doing that, you lose your job. Now you're struggling to make ends meet. And you say, wait a minute, this is not how this is supposed to work. And all the while that you're struggling to make ends meet and to find a new job, your ungodly boss got a promotion and lives at a nice house at the lake with a bass boat. And you're thinking, what's wrong with this picture? I'm trying to do the right thing, and I'm suffering, and he's not doing the right thing and seems to be doing well. Or maybe you raised your child in church. I mean, nine months before that child was born, it was in church, you know. And you've taught your child to know God and to love God, and you've tried to teach your child God's word, only to see him grow up and reach those teenage years and rebel against everything that you taught him and get himself in trouble. And all the while, the atheist family down the street are sending their child to college with a full scholarship. You're saying, God, this doesn't make sense. In every single one of those examples, there's a name and a face that I have because these are people I know. And they've struggled to square their theology with God being good and their personal experience. Life is not so good. And sometimes, let's just be honest, you can question, is my faith futile? Am I coming to church for nothing? Am I reading my Bible for nothing? Am I giving for nothing? Am I serving for nothing? It seems like when I need God, he's not coming through for me. Now, some of you are saying, I'm so glad I'm here because he's reading my mail. This is where I'm at right now, and I'm, I'm struggling with my faith right now. Others of you are saying, what are you talking about? How can you be a Christian and ever question? Okay, well, if you're here and you need to hear this message, praise God. If you're here and you don't think you need this message, take good notes this morning and keep them handy. Because I promise you, you're going to get to a point in your life one way or the other, maybe a fleeting moment or a prolonged period of your life where you're going to say, God, I don't understand. And I'm having trouble not feeling that my faith is for nothing. And that's why I just felt God calling me to Psalm 
73 this morning. Psalm 37 and Psalm 73 both deal with that question, but Psalm 73 deals with it in more specificity. And plus, it's just one of my favorites, so as pastor's prerogative, I'm going to preach my favorite psalm. Now, we meet a guy named Asaph. It's a great name. You'll see his name at the heading of the psalm, Asaph. And Asaph is a musician. Asaph is a minister who leads the people of God in ancient Israel in singing praise to God. And by the way, aren't you grateful for people that lead us in worship through song? We've got an awesome staff and praise team. Yeah, give God a hand for them. Go away from our church and come back and you'll appreciate our praise team. They do an awesome job. But you know what? Even Asaph, this godly worship leader, came to a crisis of faith. We don't know exactly what it was that brought him to this point, but when we meet him here in Psalm 73, he is struggling. Things may look good as far as the congregation is concerned. They probably have no idea the hurt that he is harboring in his heart. But what we're about to read are his private thoughts and his feelings about trying to square his theology with God and his personal experience and wondering if his faith in God has been for nothing. Because life is not good right now for Asaph. He's hurting. And he expresses his emotions to God in Psalm 73. In fact, we see him three times, three different venues or vignettes in Psalm 73. The first time we see Asaph, we see him wrestling. We see him wrestling with the belief in a good God. And the experience of a life that's not so good for God's people, in particular himself. So we see him wrestling in verses 1 through 15. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is Asaph's declaration. This is his belief. Truly, God is good. That's what he believes deep down. And by the way, that's the first lesson that any of us learn as little kids in church, right? Over in the preschool or right here in a worship service, we're taught the ABCs of our belief that God is good. In fact, that's probably one of the first prayers that most of us learn how to pray as little children at mealtime. We would fold our little hands and we would close our little eyes and we would say, God is good. God is great. And Asaph believes this. He believes that God is good. God is good to Israel. He is, he is good to those who are of pure hearts. That, that, that God will bless people who love him back like he loves them and who live pure lives. But then he makes a confession in verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. You know how easy it is to slip. I mean, you can just be minding your own business, thinking you're in total control, and then all of a sudden, you just take one wrong step, or your foot hits an icy patch. Well, this is Florida. Uh, so, so you hit a slippery spot, and, and all of a sudden, you are, you are about to fall, and you're trying to brace yourself. And, and, and you're, you're thinking, wow, I didn't see that coming. 
And, and that's what's happened to Asaph. He's living his life. He's, he's doing what God's called him to do. He's, he's trying to live for God. He's trying to lead God's people in worship. He's trying to be a godly person. And something happens to him that shakes his faith. He's not talking about his physical feet. He's talking about his feet of faith. Something has shaken him. He says, but it's for me. I know God's good, but it's for me. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My feet had almost slipped. Something has happened to him that's almost pulled the rug out from under him. And what was it? He tells us in verse 4, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, you know what shook me to my core? What caused my faith to almost slip out from under me? It's whenever I looked around and I saw the arrogant and the wicked not only getting away with their wickedness, but getting ahead in their wickedness. They're doing well. They're not living for God. They don't even think about God. They act like they don't need God. They act like God doesn't exist. And how are they doing? Oh, they're doing well. They are prospering. Now, the word in the Hebrew for prospering is a Hebrew word you probably have heard before. It's the word shalom. It's the Hebrew word for peace, for tranquility. All is well with these wicked, arrogant people. And Asaph is saying, there's something wrong with this picture. I'm trying to live for God, and I'm hurting, and I'm struggling, and I'm suffering. And yet, they're not living for God, and they're doing well. That is what has almost caused his feet to stumble, his steps to slip out from under him. He was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He wanted what they had. He wants that prosperity for himself. I want to be at peace. I want to be doing well. I want to have the good things of life. And after all, I'm living for God. I thought God would come through for me. Then verses 4 through 12, he begins to describe these wicked people. Uh, listen to verse 4. It says, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak. With malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, here's what the wicked people say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. I like the way the New Living Translation paraphrases verses 4 through 12. It says, They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They, they don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. 
What does God know? They ask. Does the Most High even know what's happening? They ask. Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. That's what's caused Asaph to stumble, almost stumble, to almost slip, is that he sees he's trying to live a godly life and he is suffering. They're living wicked lives and they're prospering. And it doesn't make sense to him. In verse 13, he he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All in vain. It's vanity. It's futile. It's worthless. What do I have to show for living for God? In vain I've kept my heart clean, washed my hands in innocence. Verse 14, For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Every day I get up, I try to live for God, and every day there's a new problem that strikes me down. And all of this is a silent lament because he he confesses in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's only telling God this. He's only expressing his emotions to God And he confesses to God, if I had said, I'm going to tell everybody how I'm feeling. Instead of leading the hymn, I'm going to get up and tell them, I don't know if I believe this anymore. I'm not sure that this is true anymore. I'm struggling here. He says, if I had done that, I would have betrayed your children, the generation of your children. In other words, the people of Israel looked to me to build up their faith, and if I had said what I was thinking, I could have hurt their faith. So I just kept quiet. I'll let you in on a little secret. The reason when I preach, I use the word we a lot, is because I never want you to have the impression that I live a perfect life, and I have no questions about how the world works and God's will and God's ways, and that I never struggle with temptation. I never struggle with depression or anxiety. No, I use we a lot because even the people of God, even the leaders of God's people are human. And Asaph said, I just kept my mouth shut. No one ever knew because I didn't want to cause your people to stumble. I didn't want to tear down their faith. I wanted to build it up, so I just kept quiet. We see Asaph wrestling. But the second time we see Asaph, we see him doing something else. We see Asaph worshiping. Worshiping. You'll see that in verses 16 through 27. He says, but when I I thought how to understand this, How to square my theology that God is good, but life is not. And and why bad things happen to good people, but good things happen to bad people. It it was too much for me to understand it. When I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It just wore me out. I couldn't sleep at night. There was no rest during the day. It was just wearing me out. Verse 17, until... I was making no headway to solve this puzzle until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. It wasn't until I went to worship that I finally had a paradigm shift. 
He doesn't use that word, but you've heard that word. It's a business term. Paradigm shift means something has happened to give you new information where you no longer see a person or a situation in the same light. You now see it in a totally new light. It's a paradigm shift. It's a new way of seeing something. Stephen Covey, not a Christian, he's actually a Mormon, he wrote a book many years ago called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's, it's a self-management book. And in it, he talks about a paradigm shift that he had. He was on a subway one day and minding his own business, reading the paper, when at one of the stops, a man gets on the subway car with supposedly his children, and the man just goes and sits down and slumps into the chair and almost has his head in his hands. And all the while, the children are running to and fro all through the subway car. And not only are they running and laughing and giggling, but they're, they're really becoming a nuisance to the other people on the subway car. Men are reading their paper, and the kids are knocking their papers down, wanting to play. And Stephen confesses it, it really got on his nerves. And finally, he got up the nerve to say to the man, Sir, don't you think you ought to control your children? They're disturbing the other people. And he said it was like for the first time the man was aware of his surroundings, looked at his children, and then looked at Stephen and said, oh, you're right. You're right. We just came from the hospital where their mother died, and I just don't know what I'm going to do. Paradigm shift. Stephen now saw this man and those children in a totally different light. And Asaph said, I was struggling. My feet... My steps had almost come out from under me. My faith was being tested and shaken to the core. And I couldn't make sense of it until I went into the sanctuary of God. And God gave me a paradigm shift. He told me to get my eyes off of the immediate. And to think about the ultimate. That God is not finished yet. This is not the last chapter. God showed me their end, the destiny of the wicked. Verse 18, this is what God showed him, and Asaph confesses, truly you set them, the arrogant, the wicked, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Asaph says, earlier I thought it was me who was about to slip and to fall. I thought I was on slippery ground, but now I realize, no, I'm on solid rock in my faith in God. It is the wicked who are on slippery ground, and they think they're doing well now, and they're climbing the ladder of success, thinking they don't need God. But in a moment, they're going to come tumbling down and face a holy God who's going to make them give an account of their life. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Asaph says, I I realize now, God, that, that you're a patient God. And the reason you haven't come down on the wicked yet is because you're giving them more time to repent and to get right with you. But if they don't, That day of grace will be over. And when you wake up to bring judgment, nothing will stop you. He's not saying God's literally asleep. He's just saying from a human perspective, it's like God is saying, I'll get to that later, but not right now. But one day God's going to get up and he's going to get to work. 
in dealing with the ungodliness and the wickedness and the injustice and the racism and the prejudice and the hatred and the cruelty of this world. And when he does, nothing will stop him. That day is not here yet, but it's coming and Asaph needed to see this from God's perspective, not just from his limited, finite human perspective. In fact, Asaph confesses in verse 21 and 22, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He says, God, whenever I was all upset, wondering why you're not doing something, I was ignorant. I didn't have all the information. And I was like a brute beast before you. The imagery there is of an animal out in a field with his head down just grazing. And all it sees is what's right in front of it. Never looks up to see the sky. Never thinks about beyond today. Never thinks about tomorrow. Don and I have two cats, two sisters, uh, Fluffy and Oreo. Uh, tuxedo, you know, black and white. And uh, they're not brute beasts, but they'll work for this illustration. But if I sat them two down this afternoon and said, hey, let's talk. Where are you going in your life? What are your ambitions? What are your thoughts for the future? First of all, you'd think I'm crazy. Just go with me. This is only a sermon illustration. But just suppose they could speak back. Knowing Fluffy and Oreo, they would say, what are you talking about, future? We were just talking amongst ourselves what time's dinner? Do we have time to take a nap? Or do we need to eat first and then take a nap later? We could do both. We could go ahead and eat, take a nap, and then we could get up again and we could eat then a second time. And, you know, we were just thinking about those treats. Um, have you thought that maybe you ought to give us treats more than just once a night? That's as far as my little cats are going to be thinking. They're going to be thinking about the next meal. They're going to be thinking about the next nap. They don't think about next week, next month, next year. They don't think about eternity. And Asaph says, I was just like that. I was only looking at today. And I forgot that with you, a day is as a thousand years. And I forgot that with you, you see the long game. You, you have all of eternity in sight. You see the beginning and the end as if they're all at once. I didn't realize that. I was only thinking about this moment, not the ultimate. My pain and my problems are still here, but they're temporary. But eternity is coming. Verse 23, he then gets excited. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. He's saying, God, no matter what I'm going through in my life, I'm continually with you. Remember, he said... But as for me, verse 2, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He hadn't lost his faith. He hasn't turned his back on God. He has not given up on God. No, he's saying, God, I'm continually with you. I can't run from you. Even in my pain, when I'm doubting my faith, even there, you let me bring it to you and express my emotions to you. And here's something else he discovers. Verse 23 Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Do you know why I haven't stumbled, God? Do you know why I haven't slipped? 
Do you know why I haven't given up on my faith? It's not because I'm so good and it's not because I'm so godly. I haven't slipped and given up because you're good and you hold me by your right hand. You hold me by my right hand in your strength. Several years ago, we took our kids down to the landing and we walked over the Main Street Bridge and we went down to the fountain and we took pictures and just hung out. And I noticed this beautiful little couple with their little baby boy, uh, their toddler, and they had put him up on the edge of the fountain. And you know, there's a rail that goes all the way around it, but there was enough room for him to put one foot in front of the other. And I realized where the word toddler comes from because, you know, I thought he was going to fall over. But you know, he never fell over, never fell in, because all the while his mother was holding his right hand, holding his hand. And you and I may struggle. And we may feel we're about to stumble and fall. But our faith is not in our ability. Our faith is in the one who holds our hand. Some of you have said things to me like that in your dark hours. When I've come to you and I've said, how are you doing? And you've said, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be. I couldn't have gotten through this if it hadn't been for God being with me. He continues in verse 24. You guide me. He's talking to God. You guide me with your counsel. God, I'm so glad I came into the sanctuary today because you guide my thoughts and you guide my steps with your counsel, with your word, with your instruction. And listen, that's one of the reasons I implore you. Be faithful as best as you can to gathering with God's people for worship because we get a paradigm shift when we come together. The world beats us down and gets us all discouraged and hopeless and, and we get our priorities all out of whack and our perspective becomes flawed. But once we come back into the family of God, back into the church of God, back into the sanctuary of God, God through His Word refocuses our attention on Him and He guides us of how to go back out into this world and face those struggles. And he says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you receive me to glory. God, you're going to be faithful to guide me all the days of my life, and when this life is over, you're going to receive me into glory. Will there be no more sickness, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. You receive me into glory. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. I was envying the wicked. I wanted what they had, but I've come to realize I don't need anything except you, God. Because in you I've got what money cannot buy. I've got what death cannot take away. I desire you. I want you. I may not always have great health. I may not have a lot of money. I may not be successful or prosperous as far as the world is concerned. I may not have the nicest house. I may not have the popularity. But you're all I need. I want you. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. Asaph wouldn't have gone to those churches where they say, if you'll put enough money in the offering plate, if you'll just have enough faith, then you'll never be sick. Your child will never stray. No. Asaph says, even though I'm living for you, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my 
portion forever. Even when I'm weak, God is my strength. And even if the world takes away everything I've got, God is everything I need now and forever. I spoke to an older gentleman not long ago, and he said, he said, Ricky, I'm at the age now where life takes away more than it gives. Now, Tammy, you're too young on this, your birthday, to know what that means. But I'm glad you finally reached my age. Happy birthday, Tammy Albert. <laughs> but this guy's a little farther down the road than we are, and he said, I'm at the point now where life's taking more than it's giving. And then he said, but it can't take God from me. I think that's what Asaph is saying. You are my portion forever. We've seen Asaph wrestling. We've seen Asaph worshiping. We see him one last time, don't we? In that last verse, verse 27 and 28, we see him witnessing. Witnessing, sharing about his faith in God and what God has done for him. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, verse 28, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. I love that. But for me it is good to be near God. All of the pain of my life and the problems of my life, all of those unsolved mysteries and perplexities of good and evil and my personal experience, all of those things were conspiring to drive a wedge between me and God. That's not of God. It's good for me to be near God. Even when I'm hurting, I'm going to draw near to Him. Even when I've got questions, I'm going to bring them to God. Even when I have fears, I'm going to come near to God because He is my refuge it's in God and my relationship with Him that I find the strength and the protection that I need. I can be honest with God about my emotions. I can be honest with God about my experiences because He wants to be near me and He is my safe harbor. And why is it that He wants to be near God? And why is it that He finds His refuge in God? Not in happiness, not in prosperity, not in health not in popularity. He finds his refuge in God. Why? He says, that I may tell of all your works. He wants to use his pain as a platform for ministry to someone else who's hurting. That's why you hold Psalm 73 in your hands today. Is because Asaph learned some things about God that he said, I've got to share with others because I'm not the only one who has these questions. I'm not the only one who has these struggles of the soul. Other people are going to face these same problems and I need to tell them about the work of God in my life so that they can put their trust in Him as well. His pain became a platform for ministry to us today. Aren't you grateful that Asaph wrote this down? By the way, to whom will you be Asaph? Some of you are going through some things in your life or you've been through some things in your life where you've learned about God in ways you never would have learned sitting in a Sunday school class or seminary. You only learned it through the furnace of hard times. And you found that even when life isn't good, God is. 
And there's somebody else right now going through the same or the similar problem. And you need to be there for them to tell them about God. Your testimony is a powerful tool to share with someone else. To say to another husband and wife, our marriage has not always been perfect. Let us tell you about the work of God that he's doing in us. To say to someone who's lost a loved one, not I know how you feel. Because I don't care who you are, you can never know how another person really feels. But to be there and to hold their hand and to weep as they weep. And to tell them, if it wasn't for God, I'd have never made it either. For some of you, there's people that need to hear your testimony of how God redeemed you out of addictions. Of how God has rescued you in your pit of despair. And if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't have made it. They might not ever come to this church and hear me preach. And even if they did, they may say, what does he know? Preachers don't live in the real world. I don't know what world I live in if it's not the real world. But I know what people think. You know, I get paid to do this. I get paid to be good. But you have power because you get to be good for nothing. And so as people who are good for nothing, you can tell them about God and what he's done in your life. And they'll listen to you a lot quicker than they'll listen to me. Here's the bottom line of Psalm 73. God is good even when life isn't. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray right now in the stillness of this moment. That for those who were right there with Asaph, feeling what he has felt, I pray that they have also come out on the other end like he did to say, God is good even when life isn't. And I've had this paradigm shift today that, God, you're not finished yet. You're not finished with the wicked. You're not finished with me. And my sufferings and my pain and the problems of this world are temporary, but the glory that you will reveal is eternal. And as long as I have you, God, I have everything I need. I have what money cannot buy and what death cannot take away. I have you. And it's not that you, I'm holding on to you and my strength. It's that you're holding me by my right hand in your strength. Father, for others in this room who are Christians, I pray that things are going well for them. But I also pray, God, they've thought about what we've discussed today. Because chances are they're going to need to be reminded of Psalm 73. That God is good even when life isn't. And we can trust him. That ours is not only the gospel of a good beginning, it's the gospel of a good ending. And Father, if there's someone in this room today who for the first time in their life needs Jesus as their Savior, I pray that right now before it's eternally too late for them, they would say, Dear Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I've lived without you and arrogantly as if I didn't have to humble myself before you. I've done things I know you don't like and that are wrong. And I know that you're going to punish sin one day, but I believe Jesus, your son, took my punishment on the cross. And he rose from the dead. And so in humility, I ask for his forgiveness. I receive the gift of eternal life because Jesus promised, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And today I believe in Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Father, whatever it is you'd have us to do today, 
to rededicate our lives, to, to draw near to you and to find you our refuge, or to be saved today, or to go back to the next step area and say, I want to take my next step. I want to get baptized, or I want to find a group of other Christians that we can come together and search the scriptures. I want to find somewhere to serve in this church. Or I want to start giving financially so that others can hear this good message that I've heard today. Father, whatever it is you want us to do, would you find us faithful right now in the stillness of this moment, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.